on the one hand, Israel, having sustained this terrible blow, feels compelled, not only justified, but compelled to restore deterrence, to signal to Iran, to Hezbollah, to everybody in the region that it will not stand by as Iran's weakest proxy in the Middle East, Hamas, inflicts that kind of damage, that Israel has to change the equation, it has to change the rules of the game. And I think in some respects, Israel also understands that all the relationships that it has cultivated over the last decade with the UAE, with Bahrain, with Sudan, with Morocco, of course, continuing the relationship with Egypt uh, and Jordan, and indeed the prospect of a historic peace deal with Saudi Arabia, depend on the perception of Israel being a competent and powerful state. And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. We were looking forward to running an episode this week on a really interesting book by Jonathan Rauch called The Happiness Curve, about the way in which the happiness of people varies over the course of their lifespan. But given the events in Israel and the Middle East, we changed plan at the last minute and are going to have a conversation about a rather more sobering issue, the terrible Hamas-led terrorist attack that killed over a thousand innocent civilians in Israel, the biggest slaughter of Jews since World War II, and the evolving geopolitical crisis that is resulting, including the Israeli attack on Gaza. To talk about this, I've invited Amahai Magan. He is a visiting fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University, as well as a, a professor in Israel. We're going to talk about a broad range of issues about how Israel could fail to predict this attack, what this means for the fate of the Netanyahu government and for the state of democracy in Israel, and of course, how this war is likely to play out, what it means for the future security of the state of Israel and more broadly for the prospects now more diminished than they have been in a very long time for peace in the Middle East. Before we start, I want to comment on something that I've been thinking about for the last days, not the most important aspect of this whole story, but one that has felt very personal. And that is about why and how it can be that so many parts of the left and so many institutions have failed to recognize the injustice of the terrorist attacks. Why it is that some of the universities and institutions I'm affiliated with, places including Harvard and Stanford and Yale and Princeton, have made statements about uh, all kinds of atrocities within 24 hours for the last years, but they had to be shamed out of their silence in this particular case. And I think there's many answers to that question, including straight-up anti-Semitism, including a concern over the genuine mistakes that the Israeli government has made in the last decades, including the cowardice 
of institutional leaders who have learned in the last years that the best way to keep the job is to shut up about anything that might be controversial. But the explanation also lies with the deeply misguided ideas that so many parts of the left have taken on over the course of the last decades. The explanation also lies with the fact that they have come to embrace a concept of racism which is exclusively structural, which can only recognize racial hatred when it comes from a supposedly privileged to a supposedly underprivileged group. It also has to do with a post-colonial discourse, which assumes that people who are coded as white must be colonizers and people who are coded as non-white must be the colonized, even if the question is rather more complicated, as is the case for Mizrahi Jews who were thrown out of Middle Eastern countries who had nowhere else to go than Israel. And so the most important questions that I'm about to discuss with Amihai are about what is going to happen in the region. But one set of important questions within the West is how these institutions can write themselves. If universities worry about any little attack on the safety of their students in the form of a microaggression when their students happen not to be Jewish, but not do anything to reassure Jews amidst protests that literally celebrate those who have murdered babies and grandparents. When they make statements about every issue other than what Hamas did last weekend, then they are squandering what remains of their credibility. And perhaps they're rightly squandering what remains of their credibility. Amaheim again, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. I wish I could say uh, I was happy to be with you uh, this uh, this morning. Uh, under any other set of circumstances, I would be extremely happy to to be with you. But as you know, um, these are uh, tragic and very difficult uh, times for people in Israel, for people in, in, in Gaza. Yes, I was about to say that I wish we'd convened this podcast under happier circumstances. What just happened? Tell us something about the scale of the murder and the killing of uh, civilians uh, in Israel over the last week and perhaps help us make sense of that in the larger context of Israeli history. So this is a very rapidly uh, unfolding set of uh, events. Um, I think already we need to distinguish between uh, two phases of this uh, of this war. The first uh, began in the early uh, morning hours uh, of uh, Saturday, October 7th, the last day of the uh, Jewish holiday uh, of Sukkot, where the vast majority of Israelis were sleeping in their beds or preparing to go to, to the synagogue or barbecue with their, with their families. There were young people uh, preparing uh, to, uh, to have a nature celebration uh, in the proximity of Gaza. Uh, and then we've entered a new phase over the last uh, 24 hours. So let me just un 
unpack those two, even though uh, we still don't have all the facts. Uh, not all of the bodies have been recovered. Uh, there are many uh, missing, so we still don't have the full uh, factual picture. But let me uh, unpack uh, the events into 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 two. So the first um, phase of this uh, war was a, a huge surprise, uh, completely unexpected and, and unprovoked. Uh, approximately uh, at 6.30 in the morning, uh, a barrage of rocket fire uh, from Gaza uh, into various parts of uh, Israel uh, began. Uh, before the day was done, uh, over 3,000 missiles, rockets, mortar shells uh, were fired from densely populated Palestinian uh, territories uh, inside Gaza onto, onto densely populated uh, Israeli uh, civilian uh, centers. Uh, and that um, was consistent with uh, a pattern uh, of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the other um, major terrorist organization based in Gaza. That was consistent uh, with previous rounds of, uh, uh, of warfare uh, instigated uh, by, by Hamas. But this time, things were different. This time, it looks as if the rocket barrage uh, was really a, a decoy. It, it was a distraction from, from the real uh, military operation, which looks as if it's been planned for, for a very long time. And then there's a big question about the complicity of Iran in this. Uh, but essentially, uh, 1,500, in the initial phase, 1,500 Hamas and PIJ uh, militants uh, crossed the border uh, into Israel. They very quickly overwhelmed uh, understaffed uh, military posts on the border uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, Gaza, and then uh, made their way into uh, Israeli towns, uh, villages, and there conducted what can only be described uh, as, a, as a pogrom, as a, as a massacre. Uh, within the first five or six hours before Israel could probably uh, mobilize and, and respond, uh, we now know that uh, over 1,300 uh, Israelis, uh, the vast majority of them uh, civilian, uh, were simply massacred, uh, whether that was in the uh, nature party that was happening uh, close by. 260 bodies were already recovered from that site uh, uh, alone. But in places um, in Kibbutzim and Moshavim, uh, neighboring uh, Gaza, uh, militants, terrorists went uh, house to house, um, burning, shooting, decapitating, uh, raping, um, looting—it uh, was—it was simply, uh, simply a massacre. There's no, there's no, there's no other wor uh, word uh, uh, for it. Uh, huge uh, trauma, uh, with echoes for many Israelis of the events of the Holocaust, and with echoes for the rest of the world of the type of behavior that we have come to expect from organizations. Uh, like ISIS, uh, like Daesh, and various uh, Al Qaeda uh, affiliates uh, around uh, around the world. So that was the first phase. But as I mentioned, Yasha, in the last 24 hours, this is mutating very quickly. Um, and let me just uh, summarize this by saying that um, this could very quickly evolve into a multi-front uh, regional confrontation, in which Israel has to face not only uh, the two Iranian proxies that are based in Gaza, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but much more worryingly from a strategic and a military point of view, 
uh, Hezbollah that is based in Lebanon and uh, now parts of uh, Syria over the last few hours. There are reports of shelling from Lebanon onto Israel, possible uh, terrorist infiltration from Lebanon uh, into northern Israel, into the Galilee. At the same time, there are early signs uh, of a rising um, uh, insurgency or uh, perhaps the beginnings of an intifada in the West Bank. Hamas is doing everything it possibly can uh, to incite um, and to encourage people in the West Bank and indeed Israeli Arabs who are living within 1967 borders to take up arms uh, against Israeli civilians, uh, police and uh, military. Uh, there is also a global dimension to this, Yasha, because we see um, a uh, call by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, by Hamas, uh, for a day of jihad around uh, the region and the world. And this could have destabilizing consequences for Jordan. This could have destabilizing consequences in Paris and in London. Uh, and so, uh, this is this is the this is the situation as we as we speak. And as ever, it is of course legitimate to criticize the actions of a government of Israel. But the line between people who claim to be anti-Zionists and who are in fact simply anti-Semites is very thin. And you can see in the call for a global attack on Jewish targets, not just on Israeli targets, the nature of Hamas's ideology. What are the prospects for the war that is now unfolding? I recognize that we're in the very, very deep fog of a war that is as much impending as it is already upon us. Was the weakness of Israel in those first days simply a result of an extreme and unusual intelligence failure. And now that the country is on high alert and is mobilizing, it can look towards this confrontation with relative confidence? Or do you think that there is a possibility of broader military failures, which would put Israel at much more risk than it seems to have been in previous wars since probably the 1970s? So let me address first the um, uh, causes of this uh, conflict, and uh, some are structural and, and some are more contingent and more recent. Uh, the structural cause of the conflict um, is the fact that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Iranian proxies, are committed ideologically, religiously, materially uh, to the annihilation uh, of the state of Israel. I invite uh, all the listeners to simply go to your favorite browser and enter the words Hamas uh, Charter, and you'll, you'll see uh, in English um, the full uh, set of uh, uh, aims and declarations uh, of, of Hamas. They, they don't hide their intentions. Uh, Hamas uh, is an acronym. It stands for the Islamic Resistance uh, Movement. It is part of the axis of resistance, uh, the so-called Mukawama. And its aim is to annihilate uh, Israel and to create a fundamentalist Islamist uh, caliphate on the territory of what is now Israel. It doesn't discriminate between Jews, Arabs, Druze, 
uh, as far as uh, they are concerned, uh, they are all kufars, they are all uh, apostate and, and need to be uh, uh, annihilated. Uh, and the goal is to establish a, um, a fundamentalist uh, caliphate. That, that, that is the root uh, cause uh, of, this, uh, of this confrontation. Uh, more recently, I think we can point to uh, three uh, factors that instigated um, and, and are, uh, that help us understand the timing uh, of, this, uh, of this attack. Uh, the first is an Israeli uh, failure of imagination. Uh, a certain naivete, a certain complacency. Uh, Israel over the last uh, three years in particular believed that it could reach an accommodation with Hamas. It could uh, offer uh, greater economic opportunities to the population of Gaza. Over the last few months, uh, more uh, workers were issued with Israeli work permits uh, to, to work, uh, in, uh, to work in, in, in Israel. Uh, more money has been funneled to Hamas through Qatar and, and other sources. And Israel uh, thought that this would uh, create uh, a set of incentives that would stabilize things. We now know uh, that a lot of what Hamas has been doing over the last year has been um, to distract Israel from its plan uh, of attack. But there was a certain degree of complacency and naivete uh, there. Again, we don't know all the facts. Historically, after this type of catastrophe, a national commission of inquiry will have to be created uh, after, after the war to investigate uh, what happened. But clearly, this is a colossal intelligence failure followed by a colossal operational failure. So that's uh, point uh, number one. Point number two, Israel looked distinctly vulnerable because of the extreme polarization over the last uh, year, because um, of the public statements made by Israeli pilots that they will not come and volunteer uh, for IDF service if the Netanyahu government would continue on its path to weakening Israeli democracy. Our neighbors, Israel's neighbors, um, have been watching. We, we tend to think that Israel is very good at watching um, its neighbors, but the neighbors are also very good at watching Israel and understanding Israeli society. And they detected a unique moment of division and vulnerability uh, uh, over the past uh, several months. There is a third uh, reason, Yasha, and it is a strategic one. It is more difficult to prove because Iran is very good at obfuscating uh, its operations. The nature of proxy warfare, uh, the essence of proxy warfare is plausible deniability uh, on the part of the, of the patrons. So we don't yet have the full picture. Um, but it is clear that uh, Iran has very uh, powerful strategic incentives for trying to sow chaos uh, in Israel and the region at this time. Uh, two things really stand out. Uh, one is uh, Iran's desire to ensure that uh, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel do not, con do not conclude uh, a peace deal uh, and in particular, uh, they, they are trying to scupper the possibility uh, of an American-Saudi uh, uh, defense pact, which would be a, a real strategic blow to Iran. The Iranians are aware uh, that the, the clock is ticking because of the American political clock uh, on the window of opportunity to conclude that deal, and they are trying to create uh, chaos in the region. There may also be, and again, this is, this is difficult uh, to prove, but I think it makes a lot of strategic sense. There may also be 
an identification on the part of Iran of a window of opportunity uh, where a regional war in the Middle East would allow Iran to really rush forward and to become, for all intents and purposes, a nuclear, uh, a nuclear power. Iran is very, very close. Uh, we have credible intelligence estimates by the United States, by Israel, uh, by other intelligence agencies around the world, that Iran is essentially within two or three months of being able to uh, enrich enough uh, uranium and to develop uh, a detonation uh, device. And so there, there, there are very powerful strategic incentives for Iran to sow chaos across the Middle East exactly at this time. So that's a very helpful account of the wider context in the region. What are the immediate dangers to Israel from a two-front war? What would happen if Hezbollah from Lebanon and perhaps other forces were to start attacking Israel as well? And how do you assess at this point the preparedness of Israeli military and Israeli society to respond to that. Clearly, as you pointed out in your earlier response, there's a perception of such deep division that Israel might not be able to respond effectively. At least on that count, it seems that there is now a government of national unity and that even further there's deep anger towards both the policies pursued by Benjamin Netanyahu before this moment and the intelligence failures which led to this attack, the ability of Israelis to close ranks for the moment because of this attack, defer any political accountability and stand together seems to be assured. But in terms of military preparedness, in terms of capacity, how worried do you think Israelis need to be right now about a potential two-front or multi-front war? So the threat of uh, all-out war with uh, Hezbollah and potentially other Iranian proxies around the Middle East, let me remind you there are a variety of Shia uh, Iranian militias based in Syria today, based in uh, Iraq, uh, based in Yemen. Uh, and Iran um, certainly has the capacity uh, to facilitate the launching Uh, of drone attacks, of missiles attacks, uh, not just from Lebanon, but also from Syria uh, and potentially from Iraq and, and Yemen. So the, the scale of this is, is potentially very uh, extensive uh, indeed. Let me just give you uh, a sense of uh, proportion. Uh, Hezbollah is not a terrorist organization in the way that you and I might normally think about a terrorist organization. Hezbollah uh, is a proto-state uh, and one of the most powerful military actors, uh, certainly in the region and arguably uh, in, in the world. Uh, at the moment, Hezbollah has about 180,000 uh, rockets and missiles uh, pointed at Israel. Uh, of those, uh, somewhere between 35 and 40,000 uh, precision-guided, GPS-guided Uh, uh, missiles that could hit critical infrastructure in Israel, and Israel is a very small country. It's the size of uh, it's the size of New Jersey. Um, it has one major international airport, Ben Gurion International Airport, um, and its critical infrastructure is uh, is therefore vulnerable. If um, Hezbollah were to enter this war in full force, we would be facing a very different type of campaign, and Israel would be facing, at the very least, a two-front uh, assault, one from the south, one from the north. But as I mentioned before, uh, Yasha, that could potentially uh, escalate 
into a much messier uh, reality uh, of um, uh, various types of attacks on civilians and uh, disruption of Israel's war effort in the West Bank and within Israel uh, itself, something that, that Israeli military analysts have been warning about uh, for several years now. Clearly, uh, internal divisions and um, a neglect of the core functions of national defense, not only over the last year, Yasha, but I would say over the last four or five years, as Israel has gone from one failed government to another failed government, from, from one cycle of elections to another cycle of, of, of elections, uh, and, as, and as Israelis have been focused on their internal political squabbles, that has certainly uh, undermined both uh, internal uh, social cohesion, which is so critical uh, for warfare. Uh, power is not just about technology. It's not just about military capabilities. It's about spirit. And it is at, at these moments that the spirit of a nation is tested. We see that in Ukraine. Uh, we see how uh, the spirit of the Ukrainian uh, people has allowed Ukraine to face a much more uh, powerful uh, enemy. If that spirit doesn't exist in Israel in the coming weeks and, and months, that's going to make Israel's uh, uh, time uh, and and uh, challenge uh, all 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 the all the greater. But I do believe, as you say, Yasha, that in times of crisis, Israelis rally. Uh, we've seen an incredible mobilization. Uh, of reservists. Israelis are flying from all around the world uh, to volunteer. The fact is that there are many more uh, people flying into Israel right now to assist than people fleeing or people uh, leaving uh, Israel. And so um, Israel has this unique uh, capacity for societal resilience. The question now has to be whether uh, there is sufficient level of trust in the existing national leadership to be able to conduct this uh, campaign successfully. Help us understand both what is happening in Gaza, what is about to happen in Gaza, and what the plan of the new Israeli government of unity is there. Again, what Gaza did in a surprise attack, one was which is not provoked by uh, any immediate Israeli action. In fact, as you were saying, Israel was trying to facilitate a more cooperative relationship with the Gaza Strip, was one of the worst terrorist massacres that we've seen in the last hundred years. I think that clearly gives Israel a right to battle Hamas in a very decisive way to attempt what the United States and other allies did with ISIS, which is, if possible, to dismantle the existence of the organization. At the same time, there are obviously a huge number of civilians in Gaza. There's over a million children in the Gaza Strip, two million people overall, many of whom being used as human shields and other things by Hamas. But what is the game plan here? How can Israel try to certainly cripple Hamas's ability to carry out such attacks and perhaps dismantle the organization and certainly ensure that it no longer has control over the Gaza Strip. But how can it do that without causing very serious civilian suffering, which would both be morally unacceptable and likely to backfire strategically because of the way in which it would force uh, various governments throughout the Middle East to break relations with Israel uh, or perhaps even prompt them to 
enter a war, perhaps undermine governments in the region, but are relatively comparatively moderate rather than extreme. So you've laid out the, the dilemma uh, very well, Yasha. It's a hellish dilemma. It's a catch-22 situation. There are no easy answers here. On the one hand, Israel, having sustained this terrible blow, feels compelled, not only justified, but compelled to restore deterrence, to signal to Iran, to Hezbollah, to everybody in the region that it will not stand by as Iran's weakest proxy in the Middle East, Hamas, inflicts that kind of damage, that Israel has to change the equation, it has to change the rules of the game. And I think in some respects, Israel also understands that all the relationships that it has cultivated over the last decade with the UAE, with Bahrain, with Sudan, with Morocco, of course, continuing the relationship with Egypt uh, and Jordan, and indeed the prospect of a historic peace deal with Saudi Arabia, depend on the perception of Israel being a competent and powerful state. And there's also, of course, the public anger and grief and expectation that something like this could never happen again. Let me emphasize, Israelis are not at war with the population in Gaza. Israelis understand that the population in Gaza has really been taken hostage by two callous and cruel terrorist organizations that are abusing the Palestinian people in Gaza in untold ways. And so the war here is not against uh, the Palestinian population. There is no real sentiment of a, or desire for revenge. There's mainly grief and anger and, and sadness. But there is a completely understandable Israeli public demand that we cannot go back to the status quo and that this must not be allowed to happen again. So what does that mean in concrete terms? I mean, do we understand at this point what the stated goals of the government are? And I'm constantly recording this on Friday around noon Eastern time. It's going to go out tomorrow morning. By the time you're listening to this, it's probably Saturday morning. Things may change in the next 24 hours. Things may certainly change in the next 72 hours. But as of right now, what is it that Israel is trying to achieve in the Gaza Strip? So I was about to say that Israel doesn't have uh, great um, options here. Uh, what, what we know so far is that the uh, war cabinet of the newly established emergency government, it's not a national unity government, it's an emergency uh, government. Um, uh, the, the aim is, or the declared aim, is to uh, degrade um, and undermine the... Uh, capabilities, uh, military and political, of Hamas uh, in the West Bank. There was also a statement this morning by Israeli Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant, who spoke about um, the uh, impending collapse of the goal of bringing down Hamas's rule in, in Gaza. So as far as we know, that is the declared uh, aim of the Israeli government. Whether that can be uh, achieved militarily is... Um, doubtful. Uh, not impossible, but doubtful given the constraints that you have just articulated. The uh, density, population density of Gaza, uh, the difficult uh, humanitarian situation that will quickly uh, evolve there, uh, and the fact that even if you 
reoccupy Gaza and bring down uh, Hamas's rule in Gaza, the question the next day is, well, what now? Uh, who's going to govern Gaza? Uh, the Egyptians are not interested in doing it. Let me remind everybody that uh, uh, Gaza borders two countries, Israel and, and Egypt. Um, the Palestinian Authority is fragmented and weak and probably doesn't have the capacity to, to rule Gaza. So there's no um, easy uh, option uh, that could give us uh, stability. In the immediate term, the um, uh, it seems as if the, the plan uh, of the IDF uh, over the next uh, days and uh, weeks uh, will be to conduct a land uh, operation uh, into uh, northern uh, Gaza. A notice has already gone out to the population of uh, northern uh, Gaza, from the northern uh, border of Gaza uh, with Israel all the way to Gaza City, which is about halfway uh, through um, the Gaza Strip if you look at the if you look at the map uh, to uh, evacuate uh, that area and to head south uh, this is the kind of warning that uh, international humanitarian law uh, requires before a uh, military uh, operation and it seems as if that is uh, what the IDF is preparing uh, to do uh, but we'll have to see how this pans out and what is the goal of that? I mean, I guess it means that the Israeli defense forces are going to attack. What the purpose of that impending operation is? So they've given the warning. They're going to go in militarily. Presumably they want to dismantle rockets that might still be pointed at Israel. They want to get rid of tunnels and other installations that have allowed Hamas to infiltrate Israel. But beyond that, what is the purpose of this operation? What is Israel hoping to accomplish through it? So operationally, the purpose would be to seriously degrade and destroy the military capacities of uh, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which are substantial. Gaza is a giant uh, fortress uh, with uh, tunnels and bunkers, uh, weapon storage uh, facilities, uh, weapons making facilities, rocket making and production facilities, all of these things exist uh, in Gaza. So if the operational goal um, is to deny uh, the capacity uh, to uh, continue to produce weapons and to and to shoot rockets uh, from Gaza onto Israel, that would be the operational uh, aim uh, of this uh, of this of this campaign. Uh, beyond that, uh, there is the strategical, uh, which is to change the equation, to change the rules of the game, uh, to make sure that we don't go back to the reality that existed on uh, October 6th, uh, 2023, where we're just preparing for the next uh, round uh, of attack and the next round of, of war. That seems to be uh, the short-term uh, strategic uh, goal. And as I said, uh, this is uh, also has regional implications because if Israel is able to effectively remove um, Hamas's capacity to conduct this type of warfare, uh, this uh, has uh, implications, important strategic implications vis-a-vis -vis its shadow war uh, with, uh, with Iran. Tell us briefly about the implications here for Netanyahu and the fight of Israeli democracy that's been playing out for the last 12 months or so. There's mass demonstrations against attempts by Netanyahu to 
broaden his powers, in particular by passing judicial reforms that would undermine the role of the Supreme Court. Now there is this thing you call it an emergency government rather than a government of national unity, but certainly it is something that's akin to a government of national unity in the sense that it unites within itself political parties that have been deeply hostile to each other over the last 12 months. There is deep and very broad anger over Netanyahu's failure to keep Israel safe, something that had always been core to his promise. What do you think the likely future of Netanyahu is and will Israeli democratic institutions be able to withstand these coming months? Well, I think if anything, Yasha, uh, Israel just received a very, very painful lesson in the importance of the functionality of the state um, and uh, the importance of, of trust in national institutions, which, which in Israel um, is inherently tied with questions of, of legitimacy uh, and, and democracy and participation. Um, um, in the short run, um, the efforts of the Netanyahu government to push through anti-democratic uh, legislation will be put aside. Uh, that has already been stated, in fact, uh, the um, formation of the national emergency government, the terms and conditions of that include a clause that says that this government will not promote any legislation that is not related to the war effort, which is code name for saying we're suspending um, the so-called uh, judicial uh, reform or judicial uh, coup, as many in Israel uh, see it. In the longer run, tremendous loss of trust, anger, um, directed at the current leadership uh, and, and uh, at the head of it, Netanyahu. Uh, the buck stops with him and it will be, I think, incredibly difficult for him to wiggle his way uh, out of this uh, uh, situation. If the mechanisms of democratic accountability still function in Israel, and I believe that they do, it's very difficult to see uh, how uh, Netanyahu is not compelled uh, to uh, exit the political scene over the coming months or or more. I'll, I'll remind you that uh, historically, that has been the fate of Israeli prime ministers who've lost uh, wars. Uh, Golda Meir in 73, Menachem Begin in 1982, even Ehud Barak with the opening of the Second Intifada had to uh, had to step aside. And so the mechanisms of democratic accountability have worked in his, Israel historically, and um, I, I can't see a situation uh, where uh, we have such a collapse or such a failure of accountability in Israel uh, with, with those mechanisms will not work again uh, this time. I'm going to ask you a question that I know is very hard or perhaps impossible to answer right now. But what does all of this mean for the prospects of any kind of durable settlement or peace in the Middle East? In the last years, a lot of people have been moving towards the idea of a one-state solution, of the idea of Israelis and Palestinians coexisting peacefully in the same state. But certainly a very appealing ideal and one that I would love to embrace and advocate, but I think terrorist attack last weekend explains in, uh, I suppose, a more eloquent way than any essay might why that seems to be 
naive beyond belief at this point. You know, Gaza is sometimes called an open-air prison, but the prison gates were opened last weekend, and we saw what the result of that was. So a one-state solution seems wholly unrealistic. It is also hard to see the prospects for a viable Palestinian state at this point, both because of the encroachment of settlements in the other Palestinian territories and because of what is now likely to happen in the Gaza Strip. And then, of course, Israel's relationship with the neighbors with whom it had managed to accomplish peace and some amount of cooperation are now looking more grim than we did in the past as well. You know, to leave us with some tiny smidgen of hope in these dark times, somehow, if in 10 or 20 years we should somehow look back at this moment and say things didn't work out as terribly as we feared, and in some strange, perverse way, they helped move the region towards some form of peaceable settlement, what might that even look like? Well, if there is a silver lining in, in this horrific uh, situation, uh, it is the fact that uh, it's not only uh, Israel that is extremely concerned about Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, it's also uh, Egypt, it's also Jordan. And presumably, I mean, just part of a context here that I think has always left a little bit off the page, you know, there's a reason why Egypt is not allowing people from the Gaza Strip to enter its territory, and that is that the country fears that Hamas will try and topple the Egyptian government and carry out terrorist attacks within Egyptian territory. Hamas is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is a movement that threatens uh, the stability of Jordan, uh, of Egypt, and indeed of Saudi Arabia. Um, and so um, if there is a silver lining uh, in these very, very uh, painful uh, days, it is that we've received, everybody in the region has received a, a reminder um, that global jihad hasn't gone away. You know, Yasha, since the collapse of uh, ISIS's rule in Raqqa and Mosul six, seven years ago, uh, we seem to have forgotten about uh, the problem of, of global jihad. We've turned our attention to other problems, to great power competition. We've received a reminder that, that global jihad hasn't disappeared. It's back with a vengeance, by the way. There's a cautionary tale here for every country in Europe and in, in the United States and around, uh, around the world. Um, and if there is the presence of mind and leadership, the uh, horrible events of the last uh, week will actually bring Egypt and Jordan and Israel and the UAE and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia uh, closer together. Um, the strategic imperative here is for the pragmatic Sunni Arab uh, world to work more closely with the United States, to work more closely with the West, to work more closely with Israel, to ensure that the axis of chaos, the axis of resistance, the axis of Mukawama led by Iran is not uh, is not triumphant, and so uh, to uh, answer your question, uh, Yasha, where do we go from here? Um, we need to work very carefully uh, and uh, determinately to try to preserve the gains that have been made in uh, Middle East uh, peace building over the last uh, decades, and uh, to try to move those uh, forward 
in a way that would create a regional framework that would allow us to, on the one hand, provide the Palestinian people with the dignity and freedom they so richly deserve, and at the same time, uh, ensure uh, security and, and stability, not just for Israel, but also for Jordan, uh, for Egypt, uh, and for the entire uh, region. Uh, this is not a Hamas-Israel war. Uh, this is a conflict between an axis uh, of stability, an axis of hope, uh, an axis that respects the, the basic rules of statehood and international uh, law, and an axis of chaos that is seeking to uh, undermine civilization in the Middle East and beyond. Thank you so much, Amahai, for laying out so clearly what has happened and what may be about to happen. I just want to close with a few personal words, because this is a time in which it's very hard to, at the same time, remember fundamental moral truths and make important moral distinctions. The fundamental moral truth is that every civilian victim is a tragedy and that all people who die in a conflict are worthy of the same moral regard. That Israelis who are killed and Palestinians who are killed, Jews who are killed and residents of a Gaza Strip who are killed, as well as the people from Thailand and China and elsewhere who have been killed are worthy of the same lamentation. It's also important to maintain the difference between something that has, by philosophers, for a very long time been condemned and something that they have always recognized as potentially legitimate. And that is the difference between terrorist attacks that target civilians, that set out to kill and slaughter babies and grandmothers who are not combatants, and a military set of actions that aims at a military purpose, at military targets, even if those might entail civilian deaths, however tragic each one of those might be. And so I think that there's a very clear distinction between what Hamas did in slaughtering over a thousand innocent civilians and how to think about a military response. Now, having said that, Israel is as responsible as any other state to make sure that in pursuing its legitimate military objectives, it does what it can to protect the civilian population. And it certainly is perfectly legitimate and indeed laudable to criticize the Israeli government in proportionate ways if it should fail to do that in the coming Days. So it's possible here, I think, to guard our shared humanity while acknowledging the difference between one of the most bloody terrorist groups in the world and the government response this has provoked. More broadly, we can all understand the role and the importance of identity in the world while holding on to the importance of maintaining some universal values. And I think this entails recognizing that something like a one-state solution is likely unrealistic, and yet it can hold on to the hope that one day there will be both Israelis and Palestinians living in a thriving land and being able to 
maintain a durable peace with each other, however unlikely that might seem at the moment. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.